There's already so much known about how detrimental sleep loss is. I think the, the harder work to do here is to help people see in the moment that that amount of sleep loss that you just suffered, even though it wasn't an all-nighter, you're, you are turning that dial in the direction of insulin sensitivity. And that focusing on your sleep, although it, it might seem culturally like the lazy thing to do, is one of the best investments that you can make in improving like pretty much all aspects of your health. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Sleep loss is something that many people can relate to. It happens from time to time. Some people it happens frequently and others infrequently, depending on their sleep hygiene. Well, what is the impact of sleep loss or compounded sleep debt on glucose levels? It really does in fact start to impact your variability, your average glucose levels in a day, even things like your cortisol. It gets elevated with sleep loss. And so Azure Grant, part of the research team, she and I sat down and we discussed this idea of sleep or sleep loss and the impact on metabolic health. There's so many downstream implications to sleep loss and as it compounds over time, how many hours of sleep a person gets in a night, not just the duration, but the overall quality, well, it can have pretty significant impacts on downstream metabolic health. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's where we kick things off. So sleep and glucose, we know that we, and by we, I mean many people in society uh, don't often get enough sleep from time to time. And this can come down to many factors that are in our control and some that are not in our control. So things that are in our control, we stay up late and we doom scroll, TikTok or Instagram, never good. We stay up late, we binge watch one extra show on Netflix because we go for short-term reward over long-term benefits. We stay out late with friends instead of going home to rest. We sometimes have kids wake us up. There are all these factors that cause this lack of sleep. And so the biggest thing to consider is that when you have a bad night of sleep or, or sleep loss, there are so many downstream metabolic impacts that are important to consider. Um, thought it'd be good to go into this idea of what happens when there is significant sleep loss in the near term and then over time, how that can impact metabolic health. Sounds great to me. One of the first things that I want to call out is that sleep loss is a gradient. So a lot of us might miss one hour of sleep, two hours of sleep, or have more fragmented sleep. Um, while most studies, uh, at least historical ones that have measured hormonal time series, um, have looked at very serious restriction, like an entirely lost night of sleep, an all-nighter, or restriction to four hours. So some of the things that we're going to talk about today, we're going to be interpolating from a really severe sleep restriction to what might be happening in the modern environment. And I think this provides a lot of interesting examples for us to build on with our own data set in terms of looking at the full gradation of, of sleep loss. Um, should we get into some of the some of the scary hormones? Let's do it. Let's talk about hormones, glucose, and how all of this unfolds. Okay. So first off, when people were studying sleep loss in relation to metabolism, looking at glucose, insulin, 
glucagon, our hunger hormones, and people's subjective ratings. As I said, they started out by looking at pretty severe sleep loss. So for example, if you restrict someone's sleep entirely for a night, so you pull one all-nighter, which a lot of parents have probably done pretty recently and a lot of college kids have probably done pretty recently, you increase C-peptide, which is a, a little upstream thing that helps make insulin, and you increase insulin the next day. You also increase the hunger hormone, ghrelin, makes your stomach rumble um, and increases those contractions. You also disrupt the rhythm of cortisol, which we can get into a little bit more things that go down. Uh, Glucagon goes down, which is a hormone that helps you control your lows throughout the day. Leptin, a thing that would normally be giving us a sensation of satiety released from the adipocytes, that goes down. And even TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, you might have heard it called thyrotropin, that goes down as well. So we can unpack these one at a time, but the entire suite of changes that occur with a full night's loss of sleep disruption, um, and then with severe sleep loss, thinking half a night of sleep uh, is gone, that all combines to make you hungrier, um, have a harder time getting full, be a little bit more stressed out, um, and have your entire metabolism working less efficiently. So there's this scenario that many people can relate to in one way or another, which is you get on this this cycle almost where you wake up hungry, right? You're hungry, maybe you're irritable. There are all these things going on behind the scenes. Cortisol's up, your glucose has less stability. It's uh, maybe higher average glucose levels for the day, more variability. And because of all the things that are going on at the hormonal level, you go and you grab that bagel and a coffee because you got to wake up. And then what happens? Well, I think you point out a, a really interesting thing, which is in studies of partial sleep restriction, say where you're getting four hours of sleep a night for a week, the biggest difference in terms of rating of hunger between control groups, so with normal sleep and the groups that have that sleep restriction is in the morning when they wake up. So around 9 a.m., they're super hungry compared to how, um, how they would be otherwise. And so what happens when you wake up extra hungry due to your sleep disruption. Um, Maybe your willpower is a little bit down, you're a bit groggy. Um, If you're more likely to reach for that sweet breakfast, um, you're almost double primed to have a spike after it. So first, uh, if your food choice is likely to be a little bit worse due to um, your hunger um, and cravings, uh, you're primed at the same time to be a little bit more insulin resistant. And that means a bigger spike after that um, after that meal. I think this is also an, an interesting thing that we could use to talk about insulin resistance and how fast it can change. Because um, I think a lot of people, including myself, for a long time thought of insulin resistance as maybe this state that changed slowly over time while other things like glucose and insulin were changing pretty fast. Um, but as we've been learning, it seems like insulin resistance is a dynamic property in our bodies that can change um, every few hours and and absolutely respond to something like uh, a short-term loss in sleep. So then how many nights, like, it's pretty typical where, uh, let's use this scenario, you're a student, maybe you're working, a professional working on some project, and you have three, five, you have N number of days. What's that N as far as like the number of days until you start to see significant impacts where you're going, wow, this like is not a good trend to keep on. Um, what's I guess, what's the number of days and what's the amount of sleep when we start to talk about these 
levels of sleep that make that that significant impact. So people have shown as little as one day of something like half of a night of sleep or a full night of sleep loss generates these changes that I just spoke about with um, with increased insulin, probably local increases in, in insulin resistance um, and all those those hunger issues. So that can happen as quickly as you slept really poorly last night or say you got up four hours early because you have to catch a flight. Um, but I think the the question that you're getting to is, Where's the gray area where if, say, for the next week, um, if I lose two hours of sleep for two nights or if I lose one hour of sleep for four nights, what's the difference there? And that's something that seems like it still needs a lot more active study, um, especially to be able to make um, claims or to understand what's going on at the level of the individual. Um, And that's one of the things that I think is most important about this discussion today is how we can now bring in data from sleep wearables that actually have uh, better sleep staging potential than a lot of historical sleep wearables like the ActaWatch and study people in their natural environments of their home beds rather than bringing them into a sleep lab, which is a very artificial and disruptive environment on its own. And I think that in com- combination with the CGM data is what's going to allow us to make those much more uh, fine-grained personal statements about how sleep and blood glucose relate. Because right now, it's fairly broad strokes. We know big interventions, hitting it with a hammer, can very quickly lead to um, increases in insulin resistance. Well, why don't we get into the idea of, we'll call it age and metabolic fitness? Because I think there's this big misconception that happens where we think like, oh, it's fine. That person is physically fit. Like whether or not that's a correct heuristic based on everything we know around insulin resistance and how people uh, metabolize different foods. Let's use that misconception where it's like, ah, they're young. It doesn't matter. They can go without sleep. They're fit. And we sort of like go down this irrational path, but it's not like from what we've learned, insulin resistance, you can't bucket it out. There's been research that's shown young, healthy, fit people can change in a very short window of time where all of a sudden they go from being metabolically healthy or metabolically fit to maybe eating the wrong foods and having things like uh, reduced sleep cycles over a period of time. And all of a sudden they start to develop this interim insulin resistance and you go, wait, how how did that happen? That's Alex, the young athlete. Like, he plays professional hockey. Look at like, how did that happen? But it's, it, I guess the takeaway is like, no one's immune to this. We're all exposed and it's how we manage it. Yeah. Well, one thing that I would call out is I think that the the physical activity does help a lot. Like if you're, if you're going to do one thing um, while you're eating a bit more poorly or not sleeping enough, and that's keeping a regular activity rhythm and particularly um, exercising hard, getting your heart rate up, exercising after you eat something, that does help a lot. But I, I do agree with you that it seems like no one is immune. And, and you're alluding to um, some of the work by Jerry Shulman and others, and he explains this very elegantly about how you can take young people who are um, maybe late teens to early 20s who aren't overweight yet. Um, they are sedentary, so they're, they're not exercising. But these people show signs of insulin resistance, even though if you were to look at them externally, they're fine. Even though they don't have high fasting blood glucose, uh, they're already showing signs specifically in the muscle where they're not able to efficiently get uh, glucose uptaken by the muscle. And they're starting to pump out more insulin than they need. And this is a cascade that would over a long period of time, um, lead to worsening insulin resistance, 
inflammation, especially in the fat, and then um, more gluconeogenesis, and that would eventually raise the the fasting glucose level. Um, sleep, I think, is something where the the mechanisms that lead to the insulin resistance might be a little bit more complex or or augment the ones that are normally at play. But to your point about young people, yes, sleep loss uh, is absolutely detrimental to young people. Um, and there's a lot of interesting work in um, test performance or school choice performance showing that if a student has a mismatch between when they would naturally go to sleep and wake up, their chronotype, and when they're required to take tests uh, or when they have their classes, they're going to do worse in those classes. Um, and the students are also going to do worse if they have to do things late at night. Um, and so this kind of cognitive impairment um, is something that's very visible even in fairly young students um, and that just gets worth, worse with late sleep and sleep loss. And you can imagine how these things probably compound each other, that it's not just the immediate impact of sleep loss itself um, on metabolism and on the brain. There's probably an interaction between the two where when you're sleeping less, you are also staying up later, probably eating later at night um, when most people are um, less insulin sensitive anyways, and that you would then get a combined effect of you're losing sleep and you're eating at the wrong time of day um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, chronotype is such a fascinating rabbit hole that we could go down. But the idea to digress for a sec is that we have a world that's not designed around chronotypes. It's designed around nine to five, and that causes so many challenges for so many people because you're forced to be your best self. Assume all other conditions equal and you are eating well and you are sleeping well according to the nine to five schedule and, and, and exercising. It gets very challenging because there are other outside factors that are influencing the way that you feel best or the way that you physically should be performing your best based on your genetic makeup. I mean, I think part of the issue is that at this point, even nine to five would be preferable to a lot of what people are doing. At least nine to five is a stable circadian schedule. I think especially in the last few years, since more has been done online, um, you know, school has been online. Uh, there's been an increase in communication online um, across time zones. This if you can imagine, like we we have a um, a sine wave where uh, in traditional society everyone would get up, go to work at the same time, maybe share meals together, and now we're more spread out, and that's kind of a flattened curve uh, where you're having less of a peak in the middle of everyone doing the same thing at the same time, and everyone's physiology being aligned both within the person and to the group that they're part of, and you've got more activity at the low points where when you're supposed to be taking a rest, now you're um, you're taxing your body a little bit. That's that's one of the definitions of, of circadian disruption as you get a flattening or a lowering of the amplitude of all the different rhythms, whether they be behavioral or metabolic or the sleep-wake cycle. Um, I think that's part of the issue. Like it, at this point, if we could only, you know, go back to, to nine to five and then get to bed at a, at a stable time, that would probably be a, a big improvement already. And um, a lot of the losses in, in sleep um, that you see, like they, they start to get a lot worse around the nineties and, and early two thousands, you know, in parallel with, um, our tech use going up. And so if we go back to, let's go back to 1942, 
when we started to have some of this research around how long people would sleep on average uh, over the course of a night and how that has changed now. So how, what percentage of adults uh, are sleeping seven plus hours a night? And then what does it look like as far as you go further down the tail? How many people are sleeping less than five hours? We know that objectively, this is this is very unhealthy for people to do as far as a as far as a, a consistent behavior. Yeah. So right now, well, at least as within the past decade, um, as a bucket, uh, around forty percent of people are sleeping six hours or less. Um, and I think that number has has only gone up um, over the last decade. Whereas if you look at the the bucket that was sleeping six hours or or less, even in nineteen ninety, that was less than thirty percent. You know, compared to 40. And then back in, in the 40s and our grandparents' generation at this point, that was 8% of people. So this has been a, a really fast, really big change. Um, and the the number of people sleeping eight hours or more per night, you know, the standard recommendation, that's only about a third of people right now and maybe even less. And one thing that these numbers don't get at is the fragmentation of sleep. So this is talking about um, how many hours do you usually sleep at night asking a person to respond? It's already kind of a foggy measurement, but it doesn't take into account things like how many times did you wake up to use the restroom in the middle of the night? Or how much did you toss and turn? Um, what, what was your sleep efficiency, which is the ratio of how long you were spending in bed and um, how long, much of that time you were actually asleep? And I think that is probably um, kind of like a, a lurking big factor and, and sleep disruptor because it's it's well known that if you don't sleep as soundly, um, none of the processes of sleep, the linking together of the sleep stages happen as efficiently. You don't get as much restorative sleep um, and that has its own set of, of negative consequences down the line. What's the amount like as far as hours go in a night where we start to see these impacts? Is it less than seven hours? Is it less than six? Like, is there an amount and it's not about being prescriptive saying like you have exactly this amount, but is there a delta where all of a sudden you go, holy smokes, the impact, like the, the delta between six and seven hours is like a significant impact. Is there any research around that? Yeah. I mean, the six to seven hours, if you're getting less than six hours of sleep, that's a pretty big drop off point where most people don't seem to be able to do well on that. But it it's it's individualized. Um, it also depends on when the sleep is occurring. So there, there is no magic number. I think the the goal of aim for eight hours of sleep, if you can, um, is a very good goal for most people. Um, people also can feel like they're adapting to sleep loss over time. So let's say if you slept six hours a night for the last two years, even though your body naturally wanted to sleep eight you might feel at that point like you're adapted to being a short sleeper. Um, it's not that it's actually true. It's just that you're very used to being tired at that point um, and probably used to you know, the feeling of the insulin resistance that comes with that. So I think the, the overall goal of amount of time to be asleep shouldn't change. And probably more people than are actually true feel like they're able to successfully get by on, on less sleep. Um, once you get down all the way to four hours, then you get really, really big hits. Um, and that's, I think, part of why this has been the intervention time tested in a lot of the early 2000s or, or late 90s studies on sleep loss. But, um, but the question you're asking, I think part of it isn't, isn't known. And this is something that makes me really excited about the fact that we can pull in sleep data now from HealthKit, because what you want to see is 
the regression of, say, spike size the next day to the number of hours you slept the night before, or spike size the next day compared to the relative amount of sleep you lost uh, last night compared to your last week. Um, those questions I haven't seen clear answers to. And my guess is uh, is that there's probably some kind of exponential relationship where the farther you go into sleep loss, both absolutely and relatively, um, the worse insulin resistance you get uh, locally the following day. But um, we still need to find out. And so then what are we seeing with glucose? Like you said that the more sleep loss there is, the, the we're, it's on average, you're seeing higher spikes. Are we getting more variability or, or is it harder to recover? Is it higher average glucose levels in a day where you're sitting at this elevated level? Well, what does that look like? Or is it different for, for everyone? Well, so first, what I just said, those, those were hypotheses. Those aren't like, we've already figured this out with our data. If we had gone in and, and figured that out already, that would be awesome. And we should be you know sharing it with the world. I think this is a, a big project that, um, that we need to dedicate time to um, as quick as we can. But Basically, what's already been shown is often from oral glucose tolerance testing. So the oral glucose tolerance test um, is something that you'll see most of the time now prescribed for um, women who are pregnant um, as a screening tool for gestational diabetes. Um, it's not as often now prescribed by endocrinologists for uh, for people outside the context of pregnancy. But what it is, is a specific amount of glucose, usually quite high, around um, 75 grams even. Um, and that amount of glucose is taken in the morning-ish hours, and then you sit down and you wait for your spike. Um, and if you remember, you know, anybody listening remembers the, the Coke challenge at Levels, or if you've ever, you know, had a big carby meal and then sat down and do nothing, you probably know the feeling of um, this can feel quite bad if you're not used to a spike um, or can be, you know, quite a surprise and probably at least make you a little tired if you are used to spiking. And the, the point of the oral glucose tolerance test is to evaluate how your body dynamically responds to a carb load. So if you are in an insulin-resistant state, your body is going to be already pumping out extra insulin because it, it needs a stronger signal in order to tell the cell, hey, you really need to get that glucose transporter up to the surface and let this glucose we got hanging around into the cell. Um, but if that process is, is less efficient, which it is in the insulin resistant person, then you're going to see more of a glucose rise and glucose is going to take longer to come down. And the reason that you have to do this test is that the dynamics of glucose and insulin are different than um, just glucose or insulin at the fasting state. So the problems in being able to respond to a glucose load happen before you get elevations in fasting glucose and insulin. Um, and I, I think there's probably a lot of other podcasts um, that, that you've done that cover this material in, in more detail. But basically, you can be um, showing evidence of, of big spikes or worse oral glucose dynamics for years before you get to the point where the body would be raising fasting glucose levels. So it's, um, it seems to be a much earlier indicator. And so um, to relate this back to sleep, when we're looking at short-term changes in insulin resistance, say you're more insulin resistant the day after you've lost a, a, a night of sleep 
what I would expect that to show up as first and what people have found is that this looks like worse performance locally on that oral glucose tolerance test. And my guess would be that if we look in all of the behavioral data we have from people eating a variety of foods, that you would see worse spikes overall, taller spikes, ones that take longer to come down. Um, and you could even consider this like your every food that you eat is in some way a test of your, your glucose tolerance or your insulin sensitivity. And so that's going to get worse when you've lost sleep. And so let's make the assumption that everyone's always trying their best, right? You're always trying your best to eat well, to exercise well. There's positive intent. You want to be healthier and feel feel better. And so if you subscribe yourself to certain behaviors, that being eating well consistently, exercising well, um, undertaking good sleep hygiene, like going to bed at 9 p.m. and having a nice shutdown routine, you're not exposing yourself to uh, screen time and all the things that can be sleep disruptors. But there is this confounding factor that a person might not be aware of, and that's something like OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, where that has an impact on sleep. So you're trying to do all of these things. Well, how much do we know about that impact of OSA on uh, sleep duration, sleep quality, and how that can impact metabolic health? So by definition, obstructive sleep apnea, where you're having bouts where you're not breathing in the middle of the night, that's going to disrupt your sleep. Because even if you don't consciously know that you're waking up, those precipitous drops in your blood oxygenation. Um, those put your body into a stressful state and it, it wakes you up a little bit to get you to breathe. Um, and if you've ever been in the room with someone who has sleep apnea and they're sleeping, it, it can be quite scary. They'll stop sleeping for a while or sorry, stop, stop breathing for a little while. And then all of a sudden they'll get this <gasps> big gasp as if they've just been startled. And so that process of waking yourself up um, because you, you've stopped breathing uh, and potentially doing that all night long. That's very disruptive to sleep quality, even if the overall sleep duration um, looks quite normal. And that's what I meant about this, this overall chart where you have these national surveys and you ask people how much they're sleeping. You're not asking people how much they've, they've woken up. And um, And in the case of sleep apnea, this is something that goes along very closely with being overweight. So um, one of the, the big risk factors for OSA is, um, is high weight, specifically if you get um, fat around the neck, that can drive OSA. Um, and diabetes tends to correlate with OSA. So as far as the direction of causation of if you have sleep apnea alone, uh, can we measure that that directly is causing your diabetes? I think it's probably too much of a, um, like, all things correlating in that case. However, it logically makes sense that if you're um, if you're disrupting the quality of the sleep, uh, you're going to be also contributing to that insulin resistance the next day, um, and that's probably part of the problem overall. Uh, and if you're already uh, on the road to insulin resistance, and you're already um, if you already have excess weight that's contributing to the obstructive sleep apnea, this is probably compounding the problem. Correlation is not causation, and which comes first, we'll never know. But that's that's a hard thing is that you can't find out whether or not you have apnea unless you have a proper sleep study. And sleep studies aren't something that we do at home right now by ourselves. They are things that are significant inputs to our sleep quality, but it becomes this cycle of you don't eat well, or you don't exercise well, you don't sleep well. And over time, you become insulin resistance, you become a 
overweight, you start to develop apnea and then it gets a lot harder to get out of that cycle. And so even if you have, and that's back to that, that question of, even if you have good sleep routine and you think your duration is great, but your quality is low, then that puts you on this path of not being able to, uh, not being able to mitigate the insulin resistance in the way that you think you are or the way that you want to. And that gets to be a very dangerous path over time. Yeah. Right now, I think that there are some really good tools that without a sleep study, that uh, if you are concerned you might have sleep apnea or you're concerned you might have um, you know, sleep disruption, you have a ton of more information now at your fingertips than you had in the past. So for instance, um, SpO2 rings, there are, uh, I think there are at least a few on the market now. These are pretty good at detecting the, um, the dips in uh, peripheral pulse ox that occur during um, sleep apnea episodes. There are several snoring apps that are actually really good. They just use the mic on your phone and they tell you when you're snoring, they even tell you the, um, the, amount or the volume of your snoring, which can get quite loud in, in someone with apnea. And then on top of that, um, the, the better sleep wearables, ones that are going to use heart rate and heart rate variability, have a strong PPG signal, they go beyond the simple activity measurement. Those um, can often give you a little readout of when they think you had woken up during the night. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're uh, they're a great place to start where if you are maybe subjectively, you know, you get up and use the restroom or get up and go get a glass of water a couple times a night. If someone's told you that you snore before, if you're using a wearable and you notice that you have several wake ups or um, a, a relatively low sleep efficiency, um, or if you if you really want to get into it and, and solve your snoring, if you're using a snoring app uh, in combination with one of these SPO2 rings, that can give you a, a lot of clues that you might be suffering from sleep apnea. And I think in a lot of those cases, it can be hard to be as honest with ourselves as we should be about whether we're really getting to bed um, with the right amount of time, whether we're really uh, you know, making wise food choices early in the morning. Um, so I, I think that's always going to be a challenge, especially when you think about that the majority of people around you have the same problem and everyone wants to feel like things are still normal. But the, the reality is that things have changed very fast. So um, I think there are, there are luckily a lot of tools out there that if you own up to it and say, hey, maybe this is really a problem for me and I want to help myself and then get some help. Uh, if you can throw down uh, you know a few hundred dollars, you can get a lot of the way there to knowing what the problem is. Yeah, it's the, it's the importance of proactive health and monitoring multiple markers at one time, especially when we start to talk about biomarkers and being able to monitor multiple hormones in real time. Once we get to a state where we can be proactive and start to mitigate uh, all, the, all, all of the things that can happen downstream, we understand uh, we understand health and wellness as far upstream as possible, then you start to get signal to say, hey, here's what's happening in my body. Here are things that could be uh, triggers to give you insight to say, why don't I explore that further? And that's the important thing with with all of these conversations is we always revert back to, they always seem to end in glucose is great and it's amazing and we need to know a lot about it, but it is one of many, many markers when we talk about the future of health and wellness and why wearables are so important to it. It's It's something that we need a lot more insight about what's happening in real time in our bodies than we currently have. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting research ahead. Yeah, it's true. I, I think luckily in the case of sleep, the story is very clear. Uh, we already know that 
sleep disruption leads to these hormonal changes that we talked about, greater insulin resistance. It makes you hungrier. It makes you have a harder time staying full. Um, it disrupts your, your cortisol rhythms, um, which contributes further to, to giving you high glucose and glucose volatility and probably makes you feel a little bit more uh, stressed out uh, to boot. So there's already so much known about how detrimental sleep loss is. And I, I think the, the harder work to do here is to help people see in the moment um, that that amount of sleep loss that you just suffered, even though it wasn't an all-nighter, you're, you are turning that dial in the direction of insulin sensitivity. And that focusing on your sleep, although it, it might seem culturally like the lazy thing to do, is one of the best investments that you can make in improving like pretty much all aspects of your health, even that work that you think you're not doing because you're choosing to sleep more, um, or you know, even those those social ties that you think might be weaker if you're choosing not to go out, you'll just be a, a better person and a metabolically healthier person overall if you prioritize this. So um, I think it's an incredibly interesting set of research questions that we need to pursue as far as filling in that whole gradient of amount of sleep disruption correlated to glucose volatility as well as duration. But I think the I think the behavioral story will stay pretty similar and it will be about driving home um, what we already know, but with more detail um, to help people maybe culturally change a little bit in the direction of sleeping a lot. So we know that best intent, behavior change, all all the great things. Uh, someone gets off track, very normal, very understandable for a variety of reasons. What can, what are takeaways that people can do if they do get off track with their sleep, especially if they're, um, it's something that, let's use the uh, parent with a young child, they've got the best intention of getting sleep, they go to bed early, but they have these sleep disruptors. What can someone do to get back on track so that they can uh, get back to a steadier state of less glucose variability and more stable glucose and uh, overall feeling better? I think the first thing is probably the attitude that your body um, is able to be resilient. So in the case of us saying that insulin resistance can come on really quickly, you know, with a single night of sleep. Uh, the converse is also true that if you choose to catch up and you're able to catch up for, um, for even just a day, even just a week, those improvements can come back really quickly. And if insulin resistance can be made much worse acutely by, um, you know, uh, very high intake of triglycerides or or by that night of sleep or, or anything like that, uh, you can also go back the other direction pretty quickly. So first it would be um, that you do have the power to make a, a change in the positive direction. After that, I think is um, being aware of the, the state you're at. So if you know that you have slept less, even, you know, probably by an hour or two than you ideally would in your recent history or long-term history, know that you're right now set up for more insulin resistance than you otherwise would be and that the strategies that you can take to um, not tax your pancreas as much, so lower carb intake, um, increasing your fasting window, uh, in addition to working on your sleep, all those strategies are going to be a little bit more important for you. Um, I think the awareness that particularly court can be uh, higher in the afternoon and evening following sleep disruption. That one is, can also be kind of behaviorally powerful if you know you're a little more likely to um, to have your spikes continue throughout the day or to feel a little bit more stressed out uh, and therefore have that extra impetus to focus on uh, same thing, those 
lower carb, higher protein, fibrous foods that are going to be less likely to, to set off your pancreas, that those are, um, those are great interventions. And then, of course, to, to you know, sound like the broken record that we all need to be, uh, activity can very quickly um, improve insulin resistance as well as help bolster your circadian rhythm and um and you know make you tired enough to want to go to sleep again the next night so i think regular activity is um is another one to to add on top if you're sleeping poorly and and want to know what to do so all good takeaways provided someone's willpower is high enough <laughs> is it safe to say that really thinking twice so assume somebody has maybe one night or multiple nights of of sleep debt that's accrued over time, provided somebody can have the willpower to do it, would you say that those are probably the days where you should really think twice about indulging in something like reaching for that carb-heavy croissant that you're eating without fat, fiber, protein? Because the reality is everyone is going to indulge in some way, shape, or form at some time. But if you're going to do it, we know if you've exercised that day, it makes a big difference. If you've eaten a lot of cruciferous vegetables and you've had a lot of uh, the way sequencing works, you've had a lot of uh, great micronutrients that are feeding your cells, like that's a different state than being in a sleep deprived state. So is that something that you'd think through as far as like, if somebody was really thinking like, hey, should I grab that breakfast sandwich, that carb heavy bagel? Like, are those the days when you are, even though willpower, we know that's a totally different conversation that <laughs> willpower and decision making is highly stressed. Uh, when you are sleep deprived, but it, are those the times when you suggest that people um, really think about that because of the downstream impacts that it might have over the course of 24 or 48 hour duration that it just keeps compounding? Yeah. And sadly, this is the whole environmental mismatch. You know, our our evolution wants us to pack on the pounds when we're stressed out um, or when something has happened wrong in our environment, because Historically, maybe that would have meant that um, times are hard and we should make sure that we're stocked up for later. And now we're in the opposite situation most of the time. So yes, of course, if if when we're at our most tired and most stressed, we can remember, hey, this is really the time where you know I shouldn't stress eat the cookie like I want to, then fantastic, don't do it. But um, I think those periods of time when we're... Um, when we're low on sleep, when we're high on hunger, when we want carbs, those are the times when your habits are most important. And so um, even if you are struggling when you've acutely had a really bad time and you're not able to follow those habits that you know you should or not able to follow those uh, those new extra good behaviors that you want to, um, then and another thing you can do is work on building a good routine when you do feel a little bit better. Um, I know that everyone at Levels really likes the the tiny habits framework for trying to set yourself up for success in small ways and and basically forming small routines that um, you know the going for a ten minute walk after you eat something and on a good week do it every single meal and then that's a habit that maybe by the time you uh, lose a, a night of sleep you can still feel motivated to go out and do that walk so I think that we know what the good habits are. It's more about rather than chastising yourself for not having the the willpower when you lack it, it's um, making the habits really strong when you are doing okay so that you can have a, a bit of an easier time when you when you lose your night of sleep. But I think this all comes back to like 
sleep is is one of the easiest things that you can do to give yourself a big boost. And if there is a way that you can focus on sleep as one of the pillars that your life is set up and give yourself permission to consider it centrally important, then everything will get easier. (laughs) 